0: This whole thing is a vision of Chanakya. It is the vision of Kottilya. And the intelligence and vision of is difficult to understand, it cannot be understood. You know, the Vyartyashast is like an encyclopedia of ancient India. Nothing is above his vision and nothing is below his vision. He will tell you how much to eat every day. He will also tell you how to fight with the neighboring king. He will tell you what clothes to wear, what jewelry to wear, everything. looking into the mind of Kautilya via the Arthashat is an absolutely fascinating experience. Why do I mention Kautilya? Because I'm talking about administration, Amartya and Kautilya was the Amartya par excellence. You cannot get better than that. At the time of independence there was this hatred for everything that was old and ancient and Indian. So it was, you know, it was bad and let's forget about it and it's Brahminical and we don't want to read Brahminical texts and it's all useless, it's all old. It was the first time that anybody in the Western world thought that, oh, okay. So they also thought about political science. Oh, they had some theory about economics. They used to levy customs duties. Oh, really? So then there was a kind of seismic change because till then it was thought British before the British Mughals, before that, nothing. Religious mumbo jumbo, nothing. I will explain what the Saptanga state theory means, what are the seven elements, and then I will explain each of these elements in theory and in practice. How will I come to the practice part of it? I will come to the practice part of it by using examples from none other than the maurys and uh, you know that makes a lot of sense because chanakya or kautilya was actually associated with chandragupta maurya he was the one who actually picked up chandragupta as a child brought him up and groomed him to be the king of the maurys the entire empire was established by uh, Gupta and Chanakya together so I am going to use them as examples to help explain the concepts of the Saptanga state theory. So there will be theory and there will be practice. It's a point to note that I am using the Mauryans because they are very closely associated with Portalia but you could use any kingdom, any state. You want to analyze the Chinese you can You want to analyze the cholas, you can. That is the beauty of this theory. Now, before I start, I'm going to give you a kind of tiny introduction to myself, my work, what I do, and that will, you know, kind of um will place everything and give it context. So as Tanya said, I was in the Indian Revenue Service and after working there for close on two decades, I decided that my nitya, my passion, my path lay in a different area. So I moved to ancient India. I took up space in Mauryan India. I started writing a book of historical fiction. So I write a series, historical fiction series called Urnabhi, which is set in Mauryan India. And it's closely associated with what I'm telling you today because when I wrote the book, it was set in Mauryan India. Readers could not understand the background. So what was the polity all about? What was the politics? What was the plotting, the people, the society, the religion, the clothes, the food, everything? So there was a glossary. But then I decided to write a series of articles on it. Those articles then turned into a web series. So right now I am making a web series called Morello, which focuses on the Saptang State Theory and explains everything as per the morals. So this is the inception of my research into the saptanga state theory there is also one very important thing which i would not like any of you to miss in today's talk in all the other talks i will be using a few illustrations please look at those illustrations very carefully my illustrator in my team we have many members of the team a very star performer is Vitali tare the illustrator and for each and every illustration, we have gone into the depths of historical research. You are not going to find such images anywhere else. Well, we have gone into texts, sculptures, and uh, you know all kinds of historical evidence to try and bring it in front of you. So you will see some examples in front of uh, you today. And of course, I would suggest that in greater detail, you can go to my YouTube channel Bharat Kirti and watch the series module. But now, with the end of this introduction, mm-hmm. I will move on to the actual concept of the saptang state. Now, the saptang state, why do we need to study it? That's because human beings have lived in agglomerations forever and ever these agglomerations have become kingdoms they have become nation states and humanity has always tried to understand these nation states so have we so have indians but for some reason probably because of colonial arrogance and the white man's burden and the idea that indians are not able to theorize they have this very fixed idea that indians are Very good at some wishy-washy religious mumbo-jumbo, but when it comes to real concepts, when it comes to sophisticated theorizing, Indians are rich. So that kind of thinking has been so dominant that the Saptang State theory has not received any importance at all. This is the Indian very old concept of the Saptang State. Where does it come from? It can be traced back to our Itihas Puran traditions. It can be traced back to a whole generations of scholars. And these generations of scholars have been mentioned in the Arthashastra itself. I am going to talk about Kautilya's idea of the Saptang state. But he is not the one who originated this concept. It's a much older concept. You will find discussions in the Shanti Shantiparva of the Mahabharata. You will find discussions in various dharma shastras including Manu's dharma shastra. You will find discussions across all our chaturdash Vidyasthan's. So, this is not a standalone thing. Kautilya is the most important and the most um, complex ex- explicator of this theory. But this theory belongs to a period far older than his. And we will refer to some of the older... Uh, generation of uh, rishis and intellectuals who also contributed to the Saptanga state theory as far as I am able because you know there's a lot of matter. So don't we need to examine this theory of the origin of the state, this theory of the constituent elements of the state at least on merits. I am not even saying for the moment that you just throw out everything and start, start studying the saptang state No, let us just examine it on its merits. Let's look at it, understand it, read it in our modern context, read it along with so many other political theories. Why do we ignore it? Why do we pretend that it doesn't exist? That is the academic problem. This whole ignoring of theories which have originated in our own soil which are very fitted to understand not only ourselves but also the world remember India has always always been an outward looking society it has never been an inward naval gazing society we have always tried to understand the world we have been at the center of the ancient trade routes the Indian Ocean littoral and we have been trying to understand not only ourselves but the entire world so let us give this a kind of chance. What is the current idea of the nation state? We are all very much influenced by the Westphalian idea that 16th century treaty between European Christian kings where they divided temporal power, sacral power, they decided that one nation, one ethnicity, one religion is what defined the nation. That is not what defines the nation or the kingdom according to our own portfolio ideas. But we are very heavily influenced by those Westphalian ideas. In case we want to go somewhere else, then we say, okay, Plato, Aristotle, okay, Hobbes, he said that this is how the state originated. I have had discussions with people who say that Indians have no concept of how the state originated. I'm going to prove them wrong in the next five minutes. I'm going to tell you what Cotillia's idea and what actually the Indic idea, indigenous idea of the origin of the state is. Why did it come into being? I'm going to talk about all that. So, um, it is incumbent upon us in today's world and why do I say that? Because today's world has suddenly again become a multipolar world. This sounds so much like the quality that was talking about where there were a number of kingdoms and you had to deal with all of them. And one of the constituents is Nitru which is international relations. And you know, if you go to international relations and if you talk about the time the United Nations was set up, who was one of the biggest theorists, Hans Morgenthau. Now, Hans Morgenthau also had some ideas of what the state consists of. Let me tell you that his idea of the elements of the state, the constituents of the state are fewer in number, lesser in scope, than the idea of portfolio so we have to give it a chance we have to see and i mean i'm going to ask for your opinion after we finish all this do you think that we can use these theories in any way i have had discussions with bureaucrats because i am also a bureaucrat and without reading anything they are of the opinion that we do not need to read portfolio because it's too old that is not an attitude which is academic. That is not an attitude which is kind of you know fair and fair, because we need to read something before accepting or rejecting it. So why is it that Hans Morgenthau can be called the ultimate uh, person who understood power and understood realism in politics? I wish somebody would be able to do a kind of uh, comparative study of Hans Morgenthau and Cartier, and let's see what we come up with. So, you know, this is the background and this is the reason why we need to study the Saptanga state because now more than ever, we need to apply and it is my academic opinion that the application of Kortilya Saptang state theory to today's international politics as well as today's understanding of the nation state will lead us to a greater understanding, greater application and better policy making. So it's not you know just for the sake of reading something old exotic interesting no it's for today it's for improving our own policy making it's for improving our own understanding okay so now let's go on to what are the seven elements of the state the seven elements of the state are the first is swami or king the second is amartya or administration the third is Janpad or the land and the people. The fourth is Durg, which is the fort. The fifth is Dand, which is the army. The sixth is Posh, which is the treasury. And the seventh is Mitra, which is allies and which would mean in modern terms, international relations. So Swami for today, you know, for us, it would probably be the elected leader of our nation. Amartya would mean the administration. Janpad is our country, its geography, its uh, history, its society, its polity, all of it and in fact when I have been looking at the Saptanga state and at Mauryan India most of what I have uh, concentrated on is Janpat because Janpat is the people and we need to understand the people although just understanding the people is not enough because remember there are six other categories also. So Durk and Dand today uh, as far as the fort is concerned a fortification is not one of the first or even second lines of defense in our current scenario today so we take durg and dand fort and army together as representing external security security from external threats and protection from a uh, protection for the kingdom internal security will come in administration as i will explain to you and external security is durg and dand and as far as uh, Kosh is concerned, Kosh is treasury, Kosh is finance, Kosh is the backbone of the entire kingdom. The Arthashastra Shastras remember about Arth and Arth is all about money and you know portfolio is all about money. He even says Kosho Moolah Danda so at the basis of everything is Kosh. So the importance of Kosh cannot be underestimated then the last one which is mitra you know we anyone lives in a polity, community of nations so there are some friends there are some enemies some are nearby some are far off how do you understand and classify and organize your relations with them how do you deal with them how do you deal with those who are your enemies those who are your friends those who want to support you those who are neutral and uh, this is the genius of Kortelia lies in this Yoni Shad Bunniam theory and when we do this prakriti, this prakriti which is uh, Mithra, you will be able to see how beautifully we can use this framework to understand almost any political situation. You want to understand the situation between India, Pakistan and China? Use lier's theory you want to understand the relation between china u s and India use fauttellier's theory and uh, I, I will ha- I will take great great pleasure in explaining the elements to you and also showing you the uh, way in which things fall into place to understand something well. you need to know the framework and the structure once you have the framework and the structure in place. And you put all the elements together. The patterns throw up a lot of conclusions, the patterns throw up a lot of insights, and they help you to deal with any situation which may arise. So, uh, this is uh, the way in which these seven elements have been also ordered. So, when I say Swami Amatya Janpat. Then I do not say it randomly. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7 is the order of importance. And this order of importance has been stated by Thothini. Now, it is not true that all theorists have understood it in the same way. If you read the, the Mahabharata, it's that something is there in the Shanti Paru. There is also a very interesting discussion between Sulubha and Rajajanat, which is of course something in itself which everyone should have read. She also mentions the seven elements of the state, but she mentions them in a different order. So for her, the importance of these seven elements is different. And when these seven elements are discussed by Kautilya, he talks about them in chapter six and in chapter eight. In chapter six, he tells us. Book 6, what are these elements and what are the good qualities of each of these elements? What is the best king? What is the best Amartya? So all those I will tell you about. And then, you know, there is a chapter on calamities. Calamities which befall each of these constituents. Can you see how critical it is for the understanding of your own kingdom as well as the understanding of other kingdoms? to know where they are strong and where they are weak and where they can be attacked using this is a kind of you know you can do a swot analysis of these are the elements so these are the dangers to your finance these are the dangers to your external security these are the dangers to your people so you can do a beautiful swot analysis if you read that book on calamities and when you read that, you also realize that the Saptamd state theory had so many other vishis and intellectuals who gave their own opinions on it. And each opinion is considered by Chanakya, analyzed by Chanakya, And then he gives his own conclusion. So it is a beautiful way of understanding the Shastrik way of argumentation, of explaining everything that someone else has said, I do not agree with and I do not agree with this person because of A, B, C, D reasons and this is my conclusion. So this whole theory when you read book 6, book 7 and of course all of it comes through as a very well developed, sophisticated and useful formulation. According to me, I have also a very pragmatic outlook. We should study something only if it is useful something you may study because you find Sanskrit beautiful or you may find it interesting but in the end if we are to spend time and resources on it it should be useful and this Saptamra state theory is very very useful. Now you know I'll just say a couple of words about in which other eras of Indian history can we use this or have the, uh, we seen kings who have understood this very well? So there was Shivaji Maharaj. Shivaji Maharaj's administration is said by some people to be a great example of the way the excellence of the second constituent that is Amartya, that is described by Cotton. There are extant certain letters from Shivaji to his, to his ministers. And In these letters, you can see an explication, a kind of more modern explication of the excellence of administration. Or if you look at the Vijayanagar kingdom and the way the Vijayanagar kingdom was organized. So, therefore, what I want to say is that if we research this, if we think more about this, there are so many other eras other than the modern one, which I will be dealing with in detail. Where you can get so much more information and where you can get examples of how this Saptang State Theory has actually worked in practice. You know, it gives a very well-rounded view because these seven constituents together, they make up a holistic view, a 360 degree view of any kingdom, nation, state or whatever you want to call it. And the names of each of these, Swami or Amatya or janpad, all these, if I had time, I could consider the etymology. All of them are also very significant. Swami, for example, one of the feelings is the, he who gives pleasure or he who gives opulence, he who gives prosperity, that is the king. Amate, what does Amartya mean? The people who are close to you, who talk to you, who consult with you. So there is ample scope, there is huge scope for Research in considering every aspect of this theory and developing it very, very much more. Now, uh, it is perhaps uh, before I move on, I gave you the seven elements of the state, but I did not tell you why did this, according to our own theorists, why did this state come to be? Why do we need this state? Do we need it at all? In fact, indeed we do. The idea is that when there is a disorganized mass of people living together, the strong will exploit the weak. The weak will be, uh, you know, under the domination and subject to the uh, the whims of the strong. So, therefore, you need one person to stand up for those who cannot stand up for themselves. That is the basic idea of the state, the basic idea of the king. He stands for those who cannot stand for themselves. So it is to stop matsya Matsyanyai is the law of the fish. The big fish eat the small fish, and the poor small fish can do nothing about it. So it is to stop this matsy that there must be a king. And that is the origin of the first king. Let me just show you. People overwhelmed by the law of the fishes made Manu the son of Ivaswat the first king. This is from chapter 1 of the Arthashastra where Tautilya is explaining the origin of the state and this is that Matsanyaya, which is at the basis of the ideas of the origin of the state according to Tautilya. Now, uh, having given you an idea of why the state originated, the seven elements of the state, the good qualities of those elements, the calamities that may befall those elements, the use of this particular concept, I will go on to now the first element of the Saptangas state and that first element is Swami or the King. Now, there is no doubt about the fact that the King, is the most important element of all the seven there is a whole list of good qualities there is a whole description of uh, and you know i'm really i can show you so this is uh, my copy of the artrashaks and all this that you can see oh this is full of the long list of good qualities that the swami must have so the swami had to be an absolutely exceptional person. He is the most and uh, important person and that thing has been misunderstood very, very badly by many Western commentators. So, what do they say? That they say that Indians are incapable of differentiating between the king and the state. They think that the king is the state and the state is the king. The mere existence of the Saptang state theory this proves this because there are seven elements of the state not just one element swami but there are seven elements of the state and one is important there's absolutely no doubt about it portellus spends a lot of time and energy on explaining how the king is most important because he is the leader he is the one who gives directions he is the one who chooses the administration the amatyas he is the one who runs everything so a lot depends on him there are other uh, rishis and intellectuals, you know, for example, Bharadvaj or Vishlaksh who have different views on the constituents. They do not agree that the king is most important. But Kautilya is absolutely certain about that. If you read the uh, Manusmriti, it's absolutely certain about that. You read the Ramayana, you read the Mahabharata. All of them also point to the fact that they think that the leadership provided by the king, the running of the nuts and bolts that is done by the king and that therefore the king is absolutely the most important constituent now i'll give you a little flavor of the kind of qualities that the king must have and uh, well don't be too surprised at the very long list i will tell you uh, some of it in english and i'll also read some of the sanskrit strokes for you so, the king has to be born in a high family. He has to be endowed with good fortune, intelligence, pious, truthful, grateful, liberal, energetic. He has to have the desire to learn. He has to be brave, quick, dexterous, eloquent, bold, full of intellect and strength. The list of personal qualities that the king must have are absolutely legion. So, uh, let me read what he says in this chapter, book six. Uh, part one is that he says, Tatra Swami Sampat, which means these are the good qualities of the king. And then it goes on and on. shoryam, Marsha, Shigrita, dakshyam, cha utsah Guna. This is just to give you a small idea of the kind of things which are expected from the one who is at the head of the kingdom. In fact, the Swami has to be superhuman in personal qualities. The Swami has to be superhuman in the work that he does, as we will see later. And uh, he has to maintain a very, very high level of excellence. In fact, you know, he has to be probably born with it. So, if we go back to the story of Chanakya and Chandrabhita, remember, Chanakya, it is said, saw Chandrabhita, when Chandrabhita was playing with of a, a group of uh, friends, and he was pretending to be a king and dispensing justice. He sat there and he listened to what Chandu was saying, and he recognized the stellar personal qualities in Chandu, and he adopted that boy immediately, and he took that boy and raised him and built upon his good qualities and made him the king. So, personal qualities are extremely important. So now that we have a king in place what does what is he supposed to do what are the duties of a king so the first duty of a king as you can imagine is rakshan protection and he has a whole dand for that so rakshan and then palan and ocean and yoga kshem. can you tell us which book do you refer to for reading the Arthashastra? yes uh, that's an interesting question and i would recommend only one that is rp kangale there are three volumes one in sanskrit one in English, and the third one is a kind of you know, it gives you all the conclusions. So, you must read only R.P. Kangle, and please don't go in for you know, all kinds of uh, many different things that you know, for example, Patrick Oliver or Mark McClish, I would absolutely not recommend them. Please read R.P. Kangle, volume one to three. That is always on my table and the other one is the penguin edition of the Arthashastra, which is by L Rangarajan that is not a very detailed exposition but it gives you kind of abstract suppose you want to know okay how many departments were there in Portelia's administration you can refer to it immediately. R.P. Kandle is in detail you know it is the exact original and it's not easy to read I will well I will agree with that. It's it's a book I read every day, so I uh, for me it's become very easy, but it's not easy to read. So L. Randharajan is good, but otherwise, please, please, avoid the Olivell's and the cliches, And I have written many articles on uh, their understanding of the Shast, which is extremely skewed. There is also a translation, the original one, by R. Shama Shastri. So you can also read it. The thing about it is that it is easily available as a PDF on the internet. So you see, this is what I was trying to show you. When the king is chosen, so that nyaya does not operate, what do they do? They assign one-sixth of agricultural produce and one-tenth of commodities and money as the share to this person so that he does all these things. And what are his duties? Here are his duties. So he has to do palan and potion, that is care for his subjects and what is yogakshem shame is sustenance sustaining that which you have achieved suppose you have uh, as a village you have uh, achieved a great level of agricultural prosperity yogic shame is to stay in that situation of prosperity and not to let it all fly away so it is you know uh, i don't know if you remember lic has this ad uh, it's uh, slogan is Yoga kshemam so they say we protect you So think of it like that the king protects everything that you have and this is what the king is supposed to these are the duties of the king i have uh, i don't know whether all of you have uh, seen this when you read about india as written by other people there is a kind of really bad impression of indian kings as if they are autocrats they are lazy They are just there to enjoy life. They have ranivasas with thousands of queens and they just do things for their own uh, fun. Nothing could be further from the truth as far as the theory is concerned. And also mostly, of course, they are bad. They were and are bad kings. But mostly, nothing could be further from the truth. The king was a very hardworking individual. And the king was not an autocrat. Why was the king not an autocrat? I will talk about that also. But I must end this bit on the duties of the king with just one more thing. Mm. So, you know, uh, all of us know about what do we know about? We know about the welfare state. And the welfare state is, of course, a modern European concept. You know, there is no doubt about the fact that before the Europeans came up with it, nobody ever thought of the welfare of King of uh, uh, the subjects. Is that really true? Now I am going to show you another shlok from the Arthashastra. Can you see what it says? Praja sukhe, sukhe ragya. Prajanam te hite hitam. Naatma priyam hitam Praja Prajanam tu priyam hitam. What does it mean? In the happiness of the subjects lies the happiness of the king, and in what is beneficial to the subjects, his own benefits. What is dear to himself is not beneficial to the king, but what is dear to the subjects is beneficial to him. This is the essence of kingship. This is the essence of Swami in the seven elements of the state. This is the essence of Swami. He is there for rakshan, palan, potion and for the happiness and welfare of his subjects. And we must never forget this. I, I am often stunned when I read commentaries on the Arthashat by Western Indologists. They say, yes, yes, there are some strokes like that, but you know, they're all lies. It's just written there, nobody used to do that. So there is a complete disregard of the actual theory to say nothing of the actual practice. When I uh, give you examples of what Chandrumput and Ashok, et cetera, were like, we will see actual practice of this this is what the Mauryan kings believed, this is what they did and so this is something we must keep in mind that the welfare of his subjects was the most important thing for the king. Now I have uh, talked about the bad impression of Indian kings which everyone has, who so was the king an autocrat, you know the red queen kind of autocrat, off with his head if I don't like him absolutely not now why was he not an autocrat how do we know that how can we understand that the first thing is that the king was supposed to follow dharma and that means dharma and ethics informed the conduct of the king you remember that westphalian idea which india has beautifully and beautifully imported sacred different secular different Indian concepts are not like that, dharma is not a religion, dharma is ethics, dharma is the good path and that dharma the king always has to follow and that dharma will never let him be an autocrat, that dharma means that he always has to think of his subjects and his kingdom before he thinks of himself. Another very important thing and again I would ask you to listen carefully, was the king someone who took unilateral decisions? Okay, I want to attack this king before because I don't like him. I am going to do this. I am going to do that. No. Consultation was another hallmark of the Indian concept of kingship. Who did he consult with? He consulted with the second Prakriti, Amartya. His inner council of ministers and his Mantri Parishad. His inner council of ministers consisted of the Purohit. Remember, he gave him the ideas of them. And apart from the Purohit, there was the Senapati, naturally important for external security. And there was the Yubraj. And there was also either the Queen Mother or the Queen. So these, and please do note, I'm going to have a separate session on the status of women amongst the moderns, but do please note some of these things that I will be saying today about women in the modern period. So the Queen and the Queen Mother were often part of the absolutely inner council. Of the king. Other than that, he had the Mantri Parishad. I talk a great deal about the Mantri Parishad in about 5 10 minutes. So he consulted with them. Therefore, you see the idea of consultation, even though it was Raj Tantra and not Ganatantra, has been very much there. I'd just like to tell you a little story. When we came out from the period of the Mahabharata and the Ramayana, you know, after that, there was the 18 Mahajanpads stories. So, there were 18 Mahajanpads that India was divided into. These were the most important political centers. Two of the strongest ones were Magad and Vaishali. Magad was a Rajkant. Vaishali was a Gandhant. It was the gun. it was the Chavis of Vashali. They were a country. So, which means that they had a, uh, they had a kind of proto democratic setup in which all the members, all the members of the Lichavi clan had a say in running that particular uh, kingdom. So there was a long almost 100, 150 year old conflict between the Magad, uh, Magad and Vaishali. It is during the time of Bimbisar and Ajat Shatru of Magad that they actually finally managed to defeat Vaishali. And they defeated Vaishali. There is a absolutely fascinating story of Amrapali, the Ganika of Vaishali who played a very important role in this fight between Magad and Vaishali. Vaishali lost. Therefore, perhaps the course of Indian history changed and we became a Rajatan. If Varshali had won, perhaps we would have been a Ganatantra. And this very important um, event did leave its echoes. How did it leave its echoes? Because the idea of consultation, the idea of talking to everyone remained. So, Ganatantra went away for some time although it was it was there in certain pockets especially in the himalayan small uh, kingdoms etc but normally over a large part of india it went away but it left its echoes in the idea that everyone must have a voice the voice of the subjects the voice of the amatyas and the king did not take any unilateral decisions this so welfare of the people his personal qualities Welfare of the people and consultation. I will be talking much more about consultation in the next section, but keep this in mind. Consultation was another hallmark of uh, the Indian king. It is also said in Indian thought that the king cannot be too much of an autocrat. The king cannot be a dictator. Why? Because the praja will become rested. And there are so many examples of this. Take, for example, the establishment of the Mauryan kingdom, what happened with the Navanandas? The Navanandas were actually excellent administrators. The Nanda dynasty was the one which was before the Mauryans. They were the ones who had really angered Chanakya and he had decided that he is going to uproot them and he is going to destroy them and he did destroy them with the help of chandragupta So, what was the problem with the Nandas? They were excellent administrators you know they also did many kinds of innovations as far as currency and as far as army was concerned what was the problem they were deeply unpopular at a personal level because they were very exploitative and they used to um, keep the praja very unhappy so the praja was restive the praja did not want this kind of raja And when the Praja does not want this kind of Raja, it is so much easier to displace him. So if you read the uh, play which is called, uh, uh, you know, um, the play which has been written by Vishak that fifth century on the way that Chandrubhut had come uh, uh, come into the throne and how Chanakya had organized that coup and uh, how the dissatisfaction within the palace, the dissatisfaction within the city of Patliputra and in the kingdom helped them to overthrow the Nandas. So this satisfaction and happiness of the subjects with the Swami is yet another very important point which is emphasized and see how different it is from normally what we think about kings. That you know the the happiness, the satisfaction, the contentment of the people under a king is very important otherwise the king himself becomes weak. The king himself becomes subject to being thrown over as was the case with when Dhanananda was thrown over by Chandragupta and Chandragupta ascended the throne. we have this thing in place. He had so many things to do. So, how did he do them? If you read about there, is a chapter on the dincharya of this Swami, and it makes for I mean it makes me tired just reading it because his entire day is full. You know, he just gets four and a half hours to sleep out of 24. He gets up in the Muhurth, which is about 3:34 in the morning and he works all the time he has four and a half hours to sleep and about one and a half hours for bathing etc little bit of personal time with his queens otherwise for 16 to 18 hours he is working hard all the time and again i am going to show you some illustrations and sketches of the kind of things that the king did so when he got up in the morning can you guess what was the first thing he did the first thing he did was he used to talk to his spies. He used to talk to his spies because that was the most important thing that the king could do. I uh, Again you know uh, uh, a kind of aside which you will see later. So uh, I would also again invite you to take a look at the illustration at the way the king has been picturized his headdress all the way what uh, the clothes he's wearing whatever is around him because all this has been so strong the oldest paintings that we have, which is the Ajanta painting, some of the caves in the Ajanta paintings, date back to the first century BC, which is the end of the Mauryan Sunda period. So we have traced them from there. We have also read up on what the king used to wear, do, etc. Can you see that many of the spies are women? So these are the things that uh, are important. In fact, you know, I may as well tell you right now that the Mauryan kingdom the hinge on which the Mauryan kingdom depended was its spy system. Chanakya ran an efficient, huge and it it, it kind of covered the entire subcontinent and my book series Urnabhi is exactly that so that Urnabhi is Urnabhi which is the spider's web of the spy system which Chanakya had all across the country. See it was a very big kingdom. And he had to keep his eyes and ears open on what is happening all the time. So, the first thing the king did was get news. So, this is probably like getting up in the morning and reading the news. So, the spies would bring news from everywhere and that's what he would do first of all. Then after that, you know, of course, he had to confer with so many people. He had to confer with his with his Amatyas. I'm trying to show you again. He is conferring with his Amatyas. So, he will get information on defense revenue expenditure especially every single day and this is also done early in the morning then other than that who else do you think he would meet with he would also of course meet with his senapati because defense is very important so he would he would inspect his army every single day and here is an illustration of how he used to inspect the army every day so he meets with amatyas, he appoints officials, receives tributes, dispatches letters, confers with spies. He also does some personal contemplation and then he inspects the army and confers with the senapati. Now he also meets with his preceptor, which means that he has to talk to his uh, guru, he has to talk with his, uh, his uh, purohit, he has to meet all of them also. Every single day. And let me show you an illustration of that. So he is meeting with his guru, prohit physician, cook. Please note, he used to meet his cook every day also. Not only physician, but also cook every single day. So you see how full the time of the king was. How completely full. And uh, he had to devote all his time to Affairs of the state. All of it was devoted to the affairs of the state, and his Dincharya was not one which the average person could do very easily. You had to be exceptional. Remember those personal qualities? So, this is a picture of the king, the Swami. Now, which Swami shall we talk about when we talk about a Mauryan king? Which Mauryan king do you know the most about? I am almost certain the king you know most about would be Ashok, because Ashok has been belabored. By the Indian state which came into existence, I mean the modern one in 1947 as the ideal of kingship. Things just don't get, get better than Ashok. I beg to differ. If we have to choose a king who was an exemplar in the modern dynasty, you know, maybe it is Chandragupta or Ashok or Bindusar or Dashrath or Samprati, there were so many. Who do we choose? We choose Chandragupta. Why? One of course is the fact that he was the one who established this empire, this empire which ran from Afghanistan to almost Madurai, from Gad, which was in it is now Bangladesh to Saurashtra. Let me show you a map of the Mauryan empire as it existed. This is the map of the Mauryan empire. The national capital was at Patliputra. Then there were four regional capitals at Takshashila, Ujjaini, Tosali, and Sovamnagri. And the viceroys actually worked on behalf of the king. Can you see how far up above it is? It was near Kabul, and then near Madurai, and then Bangladesh to Saurashtra. So, this, who established it? Chandragupta Maurya. He was the one who established it within the confines of what is now today Afghanistan Pakistan and India and then he fought with the Seleucid king Seleucus, won in a, in a kind of very bloodless and easy way and took a lot of the territories of Seleucus back and established Seleucid-Morhean friendship he was an exceptional person who laid the seeds of the subcontinent of Bharat of Jambudvi, of India, the political seeds of its unity. In the past, if you want to see a reflection, what are we the echoes of? We are the echoes of the Mauryan Empire. What did Ashok do? He inherited the kingdom from his grandfather, ruled for 60 years and ran it into the ground an empire which had been going on strong for 100 years in 3 4 decades after ashok's death it was all done and over so ashok i'm sorry no book yes what is another reason another reason is that the subbang state theory that we are doing right now is the one which is which has been explained by cottier and cottier was associated obviously with Chandabur. so it's much better that way to act, uh, talk about channelbuk rather than about Ashok what is yet another reason and this is a slightly more nuanced reason so why is Ashok famous he is famous because a lot of his edicts have been found they have been scribbled on rock surfaces they have been written on pillars and they have been found in places ranging from Kandahar to Madurai to uh, just across the entire subcontinent and he was a very grandiose and a person very full of himself so he would write very grandly about himself and we seem to have totally bought his story about himself so these stories are all about how good he was how much he cared for his praja all the good things that he did etc etc but where can we trace these precepts from if we talk about say welfare can we trace it to the Arthashastra? of course we can so the so-called much wanted edicts of Ashok which showed the exemplary nature of him as a king. All of them are poor old Indic indigenous concepts which are understood in this peculiar narrative to have suddenly sprung up when Ashok became the king. He suddenly had this brainstorm and he suddenly became totally concerned about the welfare of his subjects nobody else had ever cared. None of the kings who had gone before Ashok had ever cared. But Ashok suddenly had a brainstorm and he decided that yes, I'm going to do all these things. Do a comparative study of the edicts on one side and the arthashastra from the other, and you will be able to very easily trace. I have done a bit of this exercise and noted down the shlokas in the Arthashastra uh, from where the edicts can be traced. So you see the concepts and theories which are explained at length in a very grandiose and personalised kind of way, I, Ashok, I, Piyadasi, So, you know, in a very, very narcissistic kind of way explained by Ashok, all of them are nothing but basic concepts of kingship, basic concepts of the state as far as indigenous theory is concerned. So, I think over here I can uh, end with the example of Chandrabukt because Exemplifies the personal qualities. He ruled with dharma. He ruled with consultation. We have some inscriptions and events about his amatthas also. He ruled according to the way we have understood the theory of kingship to be in the Arthashastra. So, this is as far as the first element of the seven armed state is concerned, that is Swami. And I hope that. It's uh, all very clear and easy for you. And anyway, we have a QA and a session, I guess. Now we come to Amartya. So what is Amartya? Amartya is the ministers of the king. The inner council, as I had told you, as well as the mantri parishad. So who would these amatyas be? Is there any specific description of who they should be? What their quality should be? How they should be appointed? It is astonishing to note the detailed description of how Amatya should be actually picked up, how they should be tested, what their conduct rules should be, how they should act, what they should do, what they should not do. Everything is given in great detail. And the only pity is that, you know, 20 minutes, even 20 hours is not enough to explain all that. But I would uh, definitely suggest that if any of you are motivated enough, then uh, reading the chapters on Amartya would be a very very interesting way of comparing administration as it runs today the tests that we have to get our administrators on board and the kind of tests that they had it would be a very kind of um, very interesting description now i am going to show you another stroke about the qualities of an amatya what are the qualities of an amatya so sat pragya shakti, sampanna nam so these people who wish to be amatyas must have sat truth pragya intelligence spirit intelligence vakshakti the power of expression and these are the kind of people who have to come to be you know, to apply for becoming an Amartya because becoming an Amartya was not automatic. Do you know that they had tests? You had to take a test to be an Amartya. And what kind of tests? Of course, Shastric tests. So, our own Chatundash Vidyas they had to be experts in that and they were tested on their knowledge. They were tested on their knowledge and then only were they allowed to become Amartyas. They had to have integrity. They had to have loyalty. And uh, there is a long description of different rishis say different things about what kind of people should the Amartyas come from. Should they be old friends of the king? Should they come from the most important families? Should only their qualities be seen and nothing else be seen? So, uh, how many should there be? On all these, I mean, for example, Kottelier says, there is no need to put down a number, just have the number of amateurs that is necessary, which makes sense, because you cannot say in advance how many people you're going to need until and unless you know, the size of the kingdom, the complexity of its working, etc. So to all aspirants for state service, they had to be learned in the Shastras, they had to be ready to give a test of their knowledge. Then. Once they were chosen, they also had a very elaborate rule of conduct. So there is a full chapter in the Arthashastra that's chapter five. It's all about the rules of conduct that uh, the the officials had to follow. It's called yogavrittam This chapter, and it is the conduct of officials. So it was not a kind of very free and easy thing. One, of course, you had to take a test. And other, the other thing is that once you were chosen, you have got to read those rules of conduct. You have to be so smart. The Amatya, he has to understand how the king is feeling. Is the king happy? What kind of advice does he need? If the king is doing something wrong, how do I advise him? What do I do? Suppose he is taking a wrong decision. Then what is the duty of the Amatya? How should the Amatya approach this? All those things are given in this, not only in this uh, yoga vittang, but also in the chapter on calamities. Because if a calamity befalls a king, which means something goes wrong with him, then it is the duty of the Amatya to correct. it. So therefore, these Amatyas had to be really on the ball, and they had to read whatever was happening around them very, very expertly and very, very intelligently. There were four kinds of tests that they had to also undergo after being appointed. This was a kind of continuous testing. What were these tests? This was one was Dharma one was Artha Upadha, and Kam What do these mean? That they were given different kinds of blandishments. So, you know, offer money, that is Artha to revolt against the king and see, does this person actually take money and revolt against the king? If he does, of course, and he is dismissed and, Maybe he will be removed from the, uh, sent away from the country, etc. Definitely dismissed from service. Then there was this uh, Kam Opadha, which is called the love fest. So you send a woman, you know what we call a honey trap today? That kind of honey trap was actually, it was quite a favorite of uh, the Arthashastran of Chanakya, Because uh, women were a very important part of the administration and especially the spies. So this Kam opadha. Was also a very important part. Then there was Bhai opada, which means scared and amatte or a senapati into doing something. So would one of these administrators be so foolish or uh, fearful that he would go against his king? So all these things were checked out. Now these are I told you about the theory of the administration. Now I am going to tell you about how it is described in terms of structure. What was the structure? So the king was at the top. And after the king, there were four viceroys. We've just seen the four viceroys that were there in practice in the Mauryan kingdom. In the Arthashastra, theoretically, it is mentioned that there should be four sthaniks. So I think there are parallels, although perhaps a straight line cannot be drawn between the sthaniks and the viceroys, but there are definitely parallels. As far as this administration was concerned, under the sthaniks were gopes. These gopes looked after. A group of villages. Inside the villages, there were the, uh, you know, Gram Vrithas and there were the also uh, the village chiefs, the headman, the Gramik. So there was a Gramik and a Gram Vritha. What does this remind you of? A proto panchayat, of course. So there were different levels of administration at the gop level, at the village level, at the viceregal level, and at the central level. And different uh, subjects were dealt with in these at these different levels so like normal you know defense external affairs currency etc were dealt with by the king. but other smaller affairs were dealt with at different levels and there is a chapter in the Arthashastra called the dharmistiam which gives you a list of what was dealt with at which level so there was a very well organized system of dealing with subjects and you know this is the kind of concentric levels of loyalty this kind of idea of nationhood is very different from the Westphalian one because it takes into account your village loyalty, your regional loyalty as well as your central loyalty. So you see this is the kind of thing that we need because we are people with multiple and diverse loyalties and personalities which all coalesce into one and somehow the Westphalian system does not understand how that that all these can be complementary and they need not fight with each other they meld into each other. So this was the way it was done Another uh, note is that the king had palace guards. The chief of the palace guards was called the Dauvarant. And I have an interesting uh, bit for you regarding the Antarvanshika. So, who was the Antarvanshika? She was the chief of the king's personal guards. And did you notice the pronoun I use? She, the head of the king's guards were always but always women and this has been set down in the Arthashastra as a precept. The idea perhaps is that women are far more loyal than men and if you read other say if you read Bhās, you know Bhās was the most popular playwright of the modern period. So if you read Bhās and you just take a look at all these things, in his descriptions too in all the palaces that he describes of kings and courtiers. The head of the palace guards, the head of the courtiers' houses, personal security, they are always women. That's something which it is difficult to digest because women are not supposed to be security givers. They are supposed to be abalas who will actually ask for security rather than give security. But here, the situation was such that it was women who were the first and last and final arbiters of the security of the swani this is also something worth remembering now uh, also we have the central administration in place we have the king's guards we have the palace guards now let's look at say you know the council of ministers so there were two towering figures one was the samidhatri and one was the samahatri i'll start with the samahatri The Samahartri was a a kind of mixture of Home Minister and Finance Minister. He was responsible for the budget, the revenue, expenditure. He was also responsible for internal security. He was responsible for all the departments in the different adjakshas, which I will tell you about. He was responsible for all of them. uh, so, he, uh, this was a, a mixture of home minister as well as finance minister. This was the Samahattri. Who was a Sannidhatri? The Sannidhatri was the person who was responsible for the actual goods. So, you know, those days it was not all digital currency and crypto coins and etc. So, it was all real things. Gems, gold, jewellery, wood, animals, furs, those kind of things. And they had to be kept in storehouses. So, the Sanyadhattri, was responsible for these Koshagrihas. There there was a network of them across the country, he was responsible for them. He had to make them, construct them, establish them and be responsible for their security. He also had to have a secret storehouse known to nobody except the king to keep things for special calamities or for special occasions. And to keep an eye on all this, who did we have? We had a Comptroller and Auditor General who was called the Akshapatal Adhyaksh. So on July 31st of every year, I'm telling you this in terms of modern dates, the dates given are different. On July 31st of every year, the accounts of the entire kingdom had to be completed, got to the center. And then the Akshapatala, Dhyaksha and his entire department would check whether all those accounts were correct or not. So there was a system of checks and balances. The Samahartari also kept one spy or a few spies in each department so that he could see that all these departments are functioning properly. So there were many types of uh, uh, storehouses. I am just going to give you a list of all the departments which are there in the Arthashastra. So there are 33 departments mentioned in the Arthashastra. I will uh, just show you a list. So there's an elephant department, treasury, mining, metallurgy, metals, mint, surveyor, textiles, alcoholic beverages, courtesan, shipping, etc. So you see, these 33, these are the different departments. These are the departments that were divided as per the economy of that time. These would not all you know, apply to us today, although some would chief controller of shipping, ports, harbors, cavalry, elephants, no, I don't think so. Um, I doubt if elephants have any importance at all. But at the time, elephants were a very large part of the national wealth Because elephants were very important for war. They were very important for doing a lot of work in the forest, etc. And they were special animals. So elephants were very, very important in ancient India and also in modern India. If I had more time, I could tell you many stories of ancient Indian elephants, but perhaps some other time. So these were the departments, so when Seleucus and Chandragupta, they met, they had a fight. What Seleucus wanted was that the northwestern parts, Punjab and uh, Takshashila around that, he wanted those parts of Chandragupta's empire for himself because he was a descendant. He was the one who took over from Alexander. So he thought that Alexander of Macedon had those territories under him, so they must be under me. Seleucids were a huge empire in Asia. Morians were a huge empire in India. And there was a certain Hembat Mart, which was a very important trade route, which both of them wanted to control. So they had to obviously fight with each other. How did this fight happen? My second book, Urnabni Two. Is going to be released in a couple of months. If you want details of how this fight happened, which spies went where, how different kingdoms of Egypt and uh, Lysimachia, etc., etc., how did all these come into kind of play, read the book. But in short, Seleucus and Chandragupt met on the banks of the river Kubha, which is near Kabul. And what did they do? They entered into a treaty all the skirmishing guerrilla warfare etc whatever had to happen happened before that then they they entered into a treaty what was that treaty they entered into a marital alliance and elephants chandragupta gave 500 elephants to seleucus and seleucus took those elephants back to him uh, back to his own kingdom and you may have heard those of you who are enthusiastic about european history about hannibal and his elephants And the Punic Wars. So, it is most probably true that the wars, the Punic Wars, Hannibal's elephants were descendants of those elephants that Chandugop had given to Seleucus when the two had entered into a treaty. So, this is one story of elephants and there are so many others you know because an elephant was well maybe if you have a fleet of Mercedes today. So, if you had an elephant then it it was like having a few of Mercedes and a mansion and a swimming pool and what have you. So the elephants were the last word in uh, being rich and showing off your richness. You you were a private person and if you were the king and if you were the Rajya then of course it was also something which you seriously needed. It was something which was uh, useful, it wasn't just not just for show but it was also very useful. Uh, Now I have spoken to you about these different Departments. There were thirty-three of them. Each of these departments had heads. These heads worked with a group of people, so they were kind of uh, three levels. There were the yukta, then there were the upayukt, and then there were the tatpurush. So let me show you uh, an illustration of how they would have worked. How an adhikshya's office would have worked. So you can see this big figure over here. He's the Ardhaksh. Then this person who is writing, there were many different kinds of um, uh, second level workers. This one is the chief. Then you had Lekhaks. You can see a Lekhak over here. The one who's writing. There is a Rup Darshak. There is a Samchak. There is a Nivigrahak and there is an abduction, and all of them have different roles to play so you can see things are coming in some people are counting them some are writing some are checking the quality all these people did different things and this was how these departments were organized how each of the adhyakshas worked this was how uh, this was uh, organized in all these 33 departments the departments of course depend on the way the economy was then and today of course we have to keep in mind that all these departments will be very very different and there will be so many new ones. Now you may well ask me of what use was this entire complicated system? Why? Because the Mauryans were a behemoth empire. They were a huge empire. I just shown you the extent and they for them trade which means trade not only along the entire length and breadth of the country, but trade with Southeast Asia, China, that means this side, Asia, and on the other side with the Gulf countries and via that to Europe with African countries. India was sitting at the center. You know, uh, for many years now, maybe 50, 60, 100 years, things have shifted to the Pacific Ocean. Earlier, action was in the Indian Ocean where are all the ancient empires of the world located? If you just open the map of the Indian Ocean littoral, check out all the ancient empires. they're all along the Indian Ocean littoral and India was sitting right in the middle. The Moorians were controlling trade. Remember I told you their argument with the Seleucids was also because they wanted to keep control of the major land route. So they had land routes, they had sea routes then they had to therefore have a bureaucracy to control this trade they levied customs duties. they levied taxes so they had to collect all these taxes they ran ships they had ports and harbors they ran caravans so they had sartvahs and i must mention that there were 18 important guilds these guilds were like proto-corporates So, you know, the textile guild would be the, everyone who was in the textile business, then there would be a gems and gold guild, that kind of, but guilds in themselves are a huge topic. So, I really can't say much about them right now. But to run this complex economic machinery needed this behemoth system of uh, bureaucracy. And uh, they also had, see, it is said that the prosperity of the moderns depended on three things. One was trade. The other was agriculture. They had developed agriculture, irrigation systems, and development of the amount of produce that was um, able to be got from the land jumped during the modern period, mostly because they had wonderful waterworks and irrigation systems again i wish i had time to explain to you some of the irrigation systems of the moraines survive to this day and we have inscriptions which tell us when chandabook and his viceroys had this particular waterworks made and uh, it is a fascinating study on its own so agriculture with the basis of irrigation and waterworks canals lakes artificial irrigation etc and the last thing was the army so all this was underwritten the security was underwritten by the army so you had to have a bureaucracy to control all this now you may also ask me that i've been telling you all kinds of things so how do you know it's true from where do you if you want to know about it or if you want some evidence where do you get it so the evidence lies in inscriptions in texts in so many remains, like I told you, you know, uh, in Saurashtra, there is an inscription of Rudra Daman, which gives you a description of how Chandragupta and his viceroy Pushyabukta actually made that particular Sudarshan Lake, because that place was going through a kind of water scarcity, water positive So they had that man-made lake made to provide water for drinking and irrigation. So if you uh, go in for reading the edicts, and the descriptions of the different things. If you, you know, get uh, kind of ignore all the grandiosity and narcissism of Ashok and actually read what he's writing. So he talks about all these departments, the ones I have mentioned, the works done by them. Then there have been other inscriptions found in different, you know, maybe on stone bases or on copper plates, etc., which talk about the different departments of the kingdom. So there is evidence to show that the theory which has been written in the Arthashastra had a parallel in the practice that was there during the moral period. So that is uh, as far as uh, evidence is concerned. This whole thing is a vision of Chanakya. It is the vision of Kotelia. and the intelligence and vision of Potelya difficult to understand it cannot be understood you know the Arthashastra is like an encyclopedia of ancient India nothing is above his vision and nothing is below his vision he will tell you how much to eat every day he will also tell you how to fight with the neighboring king he will tell you what clothes to wear what jewelry to wear everything so looking into the mind of Kautilya via the Arthashastra is an absolutely fascinating Experience. Why do I mention Kautilya? Because I'm talking about administration, Amatya. And Kautilya was the Amatya par excellence. You cannot get better than that. The stories about him also are absolutely legion. He's mentioned in Jain and Buddhist uh, uh, sources. He's also mentioned in the Brihat Kathamanjali, Katha Sagar. and you know that. These 10th, 11th century Sanskrit plays are actually based on a 6th century BCE Prakrit work called the Bharka, so it is part of our history. It's the stories of the Bharka, that itself is lost. They are part of our history. Then we also have Greek sources. You may have heard of the Indica of Megasthenes. So the Indica itself is lost, but other uh, Roman and Greek writers such as Trabo, Justin etc. have given us excerpts from that. So in those are mentioned very clearly. For example, in the Indica, one of the extracts it's mentioned very clearly how the city of Patliputra is organized. And when you see, you know, there's a department of weights and measures mentioned in the list of uh, departments. So that extract also mentions that there is a department of weights and measures. There is also a department of coins. There is also a department of measuring water and irrigation. So if you see Greek sources, then too you get a lot of pointers about how in practice many of these theoretical things would have actually worked so there you have it you have the swami the swami who is aided by amatya or administration in a in a in a huge nation state with very complex economic cultural and social activity i've been talking more about administration and economy today but in the next talk I will be talking about Janpad and then we will get into the nuts and bolts of how the people lived and uh, what kind of bureaucracy was there even in that they left nothing alone the Morgans just left nothing alone they taxed everything they listed everything they categorized everything and they organized everything. So we will see how in the next time we'll be talking about uh, Janpad and uh, we'll see I think for the next two talks, I want to talk about Janpada. I think that's the way I have organized it because it's a very complex topic. But for now, the Tanga state and the first two elements, Swami and amartya Thank you.
1: Thank you so much, Sumedha Ji, for that really enlightening and uh, analytical talk that you have given, which makes us feel even more proud of our ancestors. Uh, apart from that, when you spoke about the elephant story, I remember uh, reading one story uh, like this uh, on the internet. It says that when Alexander came and he uh, tried to attack Porus, uh, Puru, yeah, the king. So the first image he saw of uh, Porus was there was this uh, huge elephant, and standing on his head was seven foot tall Porus. So it was a uh, awe. Uh, you know, he he was uh, he was in shock for about five to ten minutes looking at that image only of a huge elephant and a seven-foot man standing on top of it. That was the thing about elephants, you know, they struck all into the hearts of everyone who saw them
0: because they were so big and huge. So, that's why the position of elephants in ancient India.
1: So, in the Rig Veda, during the Dasarajnaya war, they mentioned about a whole governance system of grameen and grammar. So, we had this governance system since the ancient Rig Vedic times, which kept changing. So, that is so wonderful that speakers like you are, you know, going into this space and letting us know being in the practical domain for so many years in the bureaucracy. Uh, so, in the links for all the audience members, I've dropped links of the books recommended by Sumedha Ji to read on the Arthashastra. I've also dropped Sumedha Ji's contacts on Twitter and Facebook and also the book, Only by Sumedha Ji on espionage and adventure and seduction in the, the Amorian tale. It's very interesting
0: watch modello it's on youtube bharat kirti channel watch it and you'll get uh, because i i spend one episode on everything so you'll get everything in greater detail
1: yes i've dropped the link of uh, Sumedha Ji's channel as well in the links please do go through all of them and please uh, explore them namaste uh ji namaste to everyone
2: first of all uh what wonderful work you have done absolutely hats off with the Bohot, bohot, uh, it's really a great achievement and we are truly grateful. that is what I would uh, like to say for you know for all your work and also for this very illuminating talk. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to share something which I had read about in a short sort of extract of arthashastra written by I think two techies a few years ago I forget their name it was a small sort of book and very interesting where they talked about how Chanakya actually spoke about how inherently corrupt Indians were. Yeah. He actually talked about it, which, which connects to all those things that you're saying. The spies, you know. So he said you have to constantly watch for what, what, what they're doing. You know, they're doing the hera you know, their accounts in this that. So he actually had an eye on everything. He was on the ball with regard to all these things, and it's it's like truly admirable. So did you read
0: what he actually says about uh, bureaucrats? He says just like fish in water, you don't know how much water they've drunk. Huh. So like that is what a bureaucrat is like. He is there, and what yes. he's you don't know
2: you don't know so there's what we watch kept on them.
0: Finally the Samahadri had one group of spies in each of these departments so yes.
2: that get corruption. and there are separate two chapters on corruption which I will yes. up. this is what was it was sort of summarized in this book and I really laughed when I read it because even way back then he analyzed the psychology of Indians you know which is not just Indians also South Asians as a generally believe the tendency towards corruption uh, that apart, that is one point and of course, we have so much to be grateful for to to Chanakya. But what exactly happened during, so of course, during the Mughal times, I may be wrong, you have done all the research on this and please do you know uh, enlighten us. Did the Mughals, any of their kings ever look into these um, uh, you know works uh, or were they inspired by anything of Chanakya? One, no, two, no. did the British bother no. and three, what about well-read people like Dr. B.R. Ambedkar? Did he ever consult this before framing our constitution? Which I'll be very frank to say that it's not really a constitution which represents the majority of the people. To be very honest. And uh, do you have any information whether Ambedkar, because he was so well read, that this, this, did he ever go back to you know a Background
0: on what people actually used to think of the So Mughals, no, because they came from a completely different cultural context. They had absolutely no connect with this land. And absolutely no connect with the ideas that came out of this land. You know, in fact, this whole corruption idea was institutionalized by that nazrana business. By, you know, offering those kinds of things to anyone who's your boss or anyone from whom you want something, you go offer nazrana. So it is a totally different thing. Chanakya wants to stamp out corruption. The Mughals wanted to use it. The more they get out of it, the better for them. So no, absolutely not. And your second question about the Arthashastra. see what happened was that for a great number of years say turn of the century after the muslim invasion a lot of our indigenous texts were submerged so what in during the colonial times what was it said that these are lost they were not lost because there were people who were reading them it was just that it was not in english and it was not in the mainstream so in 1909 you know that our shama shastri found a manuscript at the oriental research institute in mysore then he published it in 1909 in sanskrit by collating a lot of other manuscripts and he did a lot of work on it in 1915 he published a translation when he published a translation it was the first time that anybody in the western world thought that oh okay so they also thought about political science oh they had some theory about economics they used to levy customs duties. oh really so then there was a kind of seismic change because till then it was thought British, before the British Mughals, before that nothing. Some religious mumbo-jumbo, nothing. So there was admittedly a kind of sea change, but it did not enter the mainstream of academia. I am not at all aware of any writings of Dr. Ambedkar on arthashastra And the reason for this, uh, there is a, idsa that is the defense research manohar parikar uh, defense research institute so idsa for the past few years has been trying to look at indigenous areas of knowledge for the military so the arti is full of that we'll be doing that too so there was a seminar on that and there was a discussion on why other than that being a bureaucrat i have interacted with bureaucrats in raw now totally was an expert on espionage Why are none of his tenets used? Why are none of his things used? So the reasons they gave one, at the time of independence, there was this hatred for everything that was old and ancient and Indian. So it was, you know, it was bad and let's forget about it. And it's Brahminical and we don't want to read Brahminical texts and it's all useless, it's all old. And I have got this also from serving bureaucrats and talking to people who are in RAW, for example, you know, one of them read my book and he was struck by the espionage in it. So I told him this is from Cotillier. What stopped you from reading it? So no, no, it's too old and it's too useless. So there was this whole baggage, this whole mental baggage that, you know, Mr. Nehru, young India, modern India, it's not going to look back. Never mind if there are some useful things that we can get if we look back and we can adapt them for ourselves. No, we are not going to look back and Dipandri, i'm very struck by what you're saying that before framing the constitution did we read all this no we did not because we basically cut pasted the
2: 1935 goi act so of course we didn't read all this if we did a lot of things would be different thank you, you thank you for the response i know that we didn't read and my doubt was because dr um, Ambedkar was so well read did he ever refer to it very interesting that you mentioned that no blind spots i guess dipanji it is. We are paying the price for it, clearly. Thank you. Thanks for your. So, uh, do we need to read this, Sumedaji
0: Chanakya Niti? Please don't read the Chanakya Niti. It's a kind of uh, false thing. It's a medieval document made up by I don't know who. Please do not read the Chanakya Niti Shastri. Mm-hmm. It's full of a lot of rubbish. It's a misogynist kind of text. In each and every shlok, every other shlok, you have something against women. Please don't
1: read that. It's a. Read the art and you will only learn good things. Thank you, Subheda ji for clearing that lot of confusion in people's minds regarding Chanakya Niti and Chanakya. So that's a big no no. There's no okay. So-
0: time. One note: if you want to read aphorisms, small ones, read the panch tantra. The panch tantra is nothing but a restatement of the Arthashastra in simple and easily understandable ways. So if you really want to read, and there are some apt pithy aphorisms in the Tantra which it will give you pleasure to read. So
3: read the Tantra. I was waiting for your, uh, you know, your talk on that um, part where the Polyas, you know, describes about the security of the kings and all. Uh, I had read long back, and then I saw a photo of uh, Colonel Gaddafi, you know, surrounded by the ladies' guards, lady guards, and uh, that uh, stuck me a very uh, very hard that we in India we had forgotten, but probably I don't know, probably by the force of fancy or Colonel Gaddafi had done that well that's with that's besides the point uh, uh my question would be like you see uh, i'm I'm of a belief that if India is to be to become Bharat, if you understand what what i mean uh there has to be a second republic. And that republic has to be based on Indian ethos, uh, which is you know very uh, beautifully described in Kotalis uh, uh, From your experience as an administrator, and you know your personal experience and other experiences, do you see that happening in near future? Oh, in the future? Absolutely not.
0: Absolutely not, because. Our entire education system teaches us nothing except whatever is regurgitated by the Western academia. Have you, do you did you know that there were seven elements of the state? Were you taught Swami, Amat Janpad, anything in school, in college? Was I taught? No, I am all, I study different subjects. I'm also a student of sociology. So was I taught anything Indian in my sociology course in Delhi? No, except of course one thing, that wonderful favorite of everyone, the caste system. India is nothing but the caste system. So I spent two years in the Delhi School of Economics. One year was only caste system. But anything else, all the other traditions of the other different knowledge traditions, I was not taught, nobody is taught. We are, what do we do? Montessori system. So what do we look at? Some 10 plus 2 plus 3 system. We do not have indigenous education. So nothing like this is going to happen. Do not hold your breath. Until and unless we change our education system, nothing is happening because we simply do and you know, the kind of things I'm doing or some people like us, they're not enough. There has to be a concerted effort to bring all these Vidyas Khans back. Now, I am uh, trying it myself. I'm also a teacher and I uh, teach Shastric sociology, which is a mixture of modern sociology and Shastric knowledge. So that's the need of the art. We cannot and should not throw out contemporary education or Western education, but we should definitely go back to our roots and see what is the kind of education that will be useful for us and try and merge it in some new system which comes. I do not see it coming, not for the next decade. All of us, we are all, you know, whether it is Sangam talks or whether it is me or whether it is others, we are engaged in doing our little bits but are these little bits enough no they are not we still don't have critical mass so a lot of work needs to be done and it has to start with education there is no other way
3: so uh, so uh, like sangam talks is doing a very good uh, good job in uniting all these people uh, well uh, what extra could be done to, to amass that critical mass you are talking
0: think, about. Uh, no, I think what needs to be done is to um, have a very strong review of education policy and the content of education. And there first has to be some kind of commission set up which will compare the Chaturdash Vidyas Khanam and plus four with the modern system of education, draw parallels and draw up a syllabus and then once that syllabus is drawn up then there should be consultation about how we can actually connect and coordinate it with modern science with uh, you know modern education etc so uh all this uh, cannot be done at a private
2: level like us it has to be done by the state yes yeah, so uh, such wonderful work that you're doing i just have a question because i don't know how often you've spoken or you know, um, given presentations on this, but have, has there been any attempt made by anyone to help you advocate this in schools, in colleges, at least you know, little, little snippets of information yes, are you planning?
0: Yes, yes, that is happening, yes. And in fact, um, I have just been asked by uh, ICHR to collaborate with them. Uh, sorry, not ICHR, ICCR, Indian Council of Cultural Relations. So, yes, uh, I think, you know, they are tiny sprouts, tiny green leaves. Let's see when they become a tree. And I'm also uh, in touch with uh, Doordarshan because uh, this web series that I'm making, they want to broadcast it. But Doordarshan is a bureaucracy and not a Quartellian bureaucracy, but a modern Indian one, very tough to negotiate. So I'm still in kind of talks with them, but uh, do expect some time. Uh,
2: well-mounted big Hindi edition of all the things that I'm speaking about right now. Because I think this to take the discussion forward, what you mentioned about the bureaucracy is absolutely correct. We have a bureaucracy, unfortunately, that does not represent the people at all. Believe me, This is something I've always felt. The bureaucracy doesn't… care okay to stop you rather than to let you do something. And they don't respect the cultural traditions also of people. They just go by these. We have foreign laws. There's, there's no doubt about that. Often, many of our laws are totally uh, contradicting the way people live you know in, in, in terms of our culture i'm not talking broader things like discrimination and things like that that that's different but uh, our bureaucrats especially need this training so what would be great actually is if you could get this into the curriculum of the training of upsc as in for is officers Absolutely, absolutely that is, that
0: is the kind of thing one tries uh, you know to get it into raw the- or to get it into, uh, but you know, if uh, somebody from LPSNA was listening to us, they would roll around the floor and laugh. That's the impression and that's the idea they have of Kotilia or Arthashast. So they, they would, I mean, just give you the horse laugh and walk away. So we are not at that stage yet. Yeah, which, which is, no, it's, a, really it's a pity. Everyone is ignorant. If I were to talk to anyone about
2: quarterly, uh, they would know nothing. But
0: they know that
2: they have to laugh at it. But you know, if I may add that especially since last year's lockdown and Doodashin putting out all these old uh, serials, Ramayana Mahabharata, and also I believe Chandragupta Maharia, there was a huge revival. Suddenly I was reading in places that young people. Pandili, really, please don't talk to me about television serials. And they had the, an interest and, in and Chandragupta Maria. I know it won't be correct, it's not authentic, many things are...
0: Absolutely and completely anti such serials, they spread misinformation. Yes, that's true. And uh, Chandragupta Maurya, the serial, it gives me fever. Please don't talk about it. I, If I could, I would just
2: you know stop all these people from making these absolutely... True, I, I agree. There's a lot of distortion, I agree. But what I'm saying is, the, among the public, there is an interest to know. They want to know, and there is Chandrakantamari is an interesting uh, character also because of the caste element, because he wasn't oh, a Kshatriya. Yes, no, and that is what I have noticed in all my talks in India, Europe, USA.
0: There is a huge desire to know. Huge. There is no doubt about that, and maybe you know that will be the catalyst, will make every, which will make everything move forward.
2: And I think, especially among the young, that's why I mentioned the first point that, you know, if this can go to schools and colleges, you know, and just. So,
0: uh, you will be interested to note that I teach a course on Portalias, Arthashastra, and Saptang stage to small children. Oh, very. I just finished the first one
2: last month. So good to know. Thank you for doing this, and it's, it's a real service to the nation. Thank you. And those, they are bright, smart, interested children, and I have
0: great hopes from them. Thank you. Thank you. Do you have classes for adults as well? Shastri I can. Sociology if you are interested and you contact me and I get a group of 15, I can have classes for adults also. Okay, because you mentioned Shastrik sociology. Yes. So okay. that is a proper, you know, there's a it's a
1: degree course in a college in Pune. All right, so it's wonderful. It's heartening to hear that you're actually documenting this. You're saying it will be available uh, in Hindi and English in in a book format, whatever Maurya Lok series you're doing. I've dropped links for that in the chat. Please go and explore that channel uh, by Sumedha ji. Bharat Keti is Sumedha ji's channel. And even if you go to YouTube and just type in Maurya Lok series, you'll get the channel's links there, and you can watch it from episode one. So I've dropped the links there. Please do go and connect. And uh, apart from that, Sumedha ji, I have one question. Uh, the concept of nation state that we have today uh, is not co- commensurate to what our ancient system of the state was. And the nation state is more applicable to the European and, you know, these unions where there's one culture, one religion and one state. So it's being thrust upon us. Uh, where do you think there's a solution to this? The solution to this will have to be
0: very ranging. You know, we are a democratic country if people all of us if we wanted to change and if we start a movement for this kind of change then only can it happen right now today we have a constitution now in a democratic country the constitution is supreme so we have to follow it whether we like it or not if we want to change the constitution then we have to all of us start a movement perhaps there can be a referendum on that Perhaps a new constitutional, uh, constituent assembly or constitution commission can be set up. I am of the opinion that this should happen sooner rather than later because the kind of uh, pulls and pushes and the non-applicability of the constitution to so many issues in this country is very obvious. But again, remember, we are a democracy and it cannot be done except by following due democratic process. For that due democratic process, I think what we can do is get get awareness. Get awareness so that people are interested, so that people ask for change. And when in a democracy people ask for change, that change always comes. And I think that is the only way it can be done. It cannot be some kind of top-down or some group thinks that, okay, this should be changed, and that should be changed, it cannot be like that. It has to be a, a popular movement a new Constituent Assembly should be set up and the terms of reference of that should be very carefully crafted. It's a huge task, Tanya. And uh, well, I-, I won't see it happening right now.